Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 19, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, UCI urbanist Scott Bolins will return to the show to break down what's taking place around along the Northern Ireland-Ireland border amidst the Brexit process. In the second segment, Irvine Mayor Donald Wagner will speak as a candidate for the March 12 special election, the open seat in the Orange County Board of Supervisors 3rd District. We'll be right back because we've got a lot to cover today, right after a short station break. Don't go away. Thank you for staying tuned, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is UCI Professor Scott Bowens to bring his field research over the years to the matter of the Northern Ireland border amidst the Brexit process. Scott is professor and endowed chair in peace and international cooperation, planning policy and design at UCI's School of Social Ecology. His research focuses on nationalistic ethnic conflict and urbanism, politically divided cities, urban growth policy, and intergovernmental approaches to planning. Among his many publications on ethnic conflict in divided cities are his books, City and Soul in Divided Divided Societies, Cities, Nationalism and Democratization, On Narrow Ground, and Urban Peace Building in Divided Cities, and most recently, Trajectories of Conflict and Peace, Jerusalem and Belfast, 1994. Scott continues to participate in national and international forums. The ones pertaining mainly to today's topics include United Nations Development Program, Bicommunal Development Program, London School of Economics and Political Science, Crisis States Research Center, Canadian Consortium on Human Security, Comparative Urban Studies Project, Wilson International Studies Center for Scholars, Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio Center, Swedish Institute, and the Olaf Palma International Center. Scott completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology at UCLA, his Master's and PhD in Urban and Regional Planning at the University of North Carolina. His first faculty appointment was at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He's been at UCI since 1991. Scott's lucky break as a rapporteur in Salzburg, Austria, on ethnically divided cities, introduced him to new urban places and a different qualitative approach. As was with the case in the January 2nd, 2018 interview I conducted with Scott, I also had been party to some of his early research when we previously were married and lived in Belfast for nearly three months in 1995. And I hasten to say, in that very moment, Those TV monitors were also watching the O.J. Simpson trial over there in the U.K. I digress. With the latest turmoil developing with the the March 29 Brexit deadline rapidly approaches, Scott again is the obvious choice to cover what's going on in this realm along the Northern Ireland-Ireland border. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Scott Bolins. Glad to be with you again, Claudia. So... I don't want to sound really geeky here, but I guess my listeners are pretty used to this. I remember where I was when I first heard the Brexit results, and at that moment, I felt a consequential political turbulence. How about you? 
Uh, Claudia, I was in Northern Ireland doing field research in the three months lead up to the June 2016 Brexit uh, referendum. And all the polls were showing that Brexit was not going to win, that uh, the UK was going to vote to remain in the, the uh, European Union. And so when the election results came out, it was a shock. And when it happened, it was in the midst of uh, a lot of fear in the UK about immigration. And that fear overtook a lot of voters and led to Brexit winning uh, 52 to 48 percent. And at that time, Donald Trump was running for president in the United States. And we thought we were thinking that Brexit had no chance. And many people thought that Trump had no chance. But when Brexit won, it was in a way a forerunner of what was to come uh, months later. And when people said Trump doesn't have a chance, I said, well, I was there during Brexit, and we, it, was a, it was a shockwave when the UK did that. And uh, so when Trump won in November, it's like, oh my goodness, there's an echo of what happened with Brexit uh, five, five months earlier. Well, with so many ways to slice all the complexities associated with Brexit, it's good to have you on explain for us the local and the regional aspect of Brexit. Why the Northern Ireland, Ireland border issue is such a complex and inflammatory one. We'll talk about the demographics in more specific later, but, but what generally, what's the importance okay. of this border? This is going to be a long answer. Uh, this well, that's is, what we have you for. Is, this is an issue of political complexity, political and geographic complexity. For the listeners out there, you have to realize, first of all, there's the island of Ireland, and it is detached. It's, a, it's not part physically of, of Britain, Wales, and Scotland. Yet, the top 17% of the island of Ireland is the province of Northern Ireland. And that province is linked not with Ireland, but with the United Kingdom. It's within the United Kingdom. So you have the United Kingdom of England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland across the ocean, across the sea. And yet, so what we have is... That's funny you said ocean, but yeah, the Irish Sea. Right. The Irish Sea. So you have this strange uh, historically based se political separation of Northern Ireland from the country or Republic of Ireland. And thus there is a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. About 310 miles long is... I it, think about. It's, it's about 310 miles. That's about uh, twice, more than twice the size of the California-Mexico border, if you want to put it in perspective. It's crossed by about 270 different public roads. And listeners out there, if you've ever been in Ireland, you know what the roads are like. The, a lot of them are very small. And it's a very irregularly shaped border uh, based on old county boundaries. So that's the situation. Brexit comes in, and all of a sudden the UK, which remember in, includes the Northern Ireland, wants to separate from the European Union. The Republic of Ireland is part, a full-fledged member of the European Union. So with Brexit passing, that is creating a border between I mean, if the UK does indeed leave, it, it creates a border between the UK and the European Union, right there in the old Nor Northern Ireland, Ireland border. 
and that creates the problem. It's the only internal border that the United Kingdom would have with the EU. And if the UK totally breaks from the EU, what do you do with movement of people, movement of goods, issues of migration? Uh, because right now, the e within the EU, you have total freedom, mobility of movement. But now, if the UK leaves, uh, now you have a the problem of what do you do with that border? Do you cr do you create a what's called a hard border, or a soft border? And we can talk about what those two options mean and the the political dilemma that's in, unfolded due to that. So what's very interesting is a look at the breakdown of the voting for re what we'll call them the remain the remain vote. Northern Ireland voted 1.9 million votes on June 23rd of the 2016. And so 56, as you said, voted to remain. And then, the, uh, but it seems that it's a very sectarian turnout that 85% of the Catholics voted to remain and only 40% of the Protestants. And you can sort of, you can see along the that meandering border you're describing mm -hmm. that there are, it is solid remain. I mean, up way up there. And so the people that are most affected by hard or soft border are the ones who would have nothing of this border. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I hope we'll get into some of the, the deeply personal thing of people that are commuting just to drop their kids off later. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, you know, get into that connection. So how, I guess what, because of, you've done so much work on the sectarian tension in Northern Ireland all of for over a century, what has Brexit, what kind of big fat itch has it scratched? What kind of a scab has it pulled off in the people that are trying to get along since the Good Friday Agreement in 1998? I'll classify two major groups in Northern Ireland. I'll call them the Catholic Republicans and the Protestant Unionists. Protestant Unionists want to continue to remain in the UK, whereas Catholic Republicans want to unite with Ireland and create a united Ireland of both Ireland and Northern Ireland. Now, that was a big deal. Between 1969 and 1998, a civil war took place in Northern Ireland. It's called the Troubles, and it killed over uh, 3,600 people, bombings, shootings, the new use of a, of a chemical a bomb called Semtex, which then became very famous. We had paramilitaries uh, all over the place. We had the British Army in, in Northern Ireland to try to stabilize the situation. So it is, it, it, we have a peace in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement, and political violence is much, is much decreased in Northern Ireland. But here's the problem with back to that border and why it's so significant. The uh, Catholic Republicans do not want any sort of border there. Um, and the fact that Brexit now is threatening to create, to reestablish a harder border than there is now is very frightening to Catholic Republicans. On the other hand, Protestant Unionists, many of them want a hard border because they want that clear demarcation between United Kingdom which where the Protestant unions want to align, continue to align, and this Republic of Ireland. So Brexit and the creation of this hard or soft border plays directly into those larger, what are called sectarian differences about what the future, political future of Northern Ireland should be. Protestant unionists want a hard border. 
they want physical checks. They don't want any sort of facilitation of mobility of people or goods across that border. Um, that, however, a hard border brings back to mind the ugly years of the Troubles because that border was a place of major sectarian killings. Um, it was smuggling by Republican, uh, by Catholic Republicans across the border. The British Army was all over the place. They barricaded and uh, and dynamited many of the minor roads, and they 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 created physical checks uh, at the borders to check people's ID and so forth. So it was a very very troubling time and a toxic time. Very toxic time. So when people and that was 19, basically 19, 19, early nineteen seventies to nineteen ninety eight, about three decades of horrific uh, conflict and and terrible loss of life. So when now when Brexit is is bringing back this issue of a border and whether it's going to be soft or hard, it brings back horrible memories on the part of people, um, and yet it's embroiled in this larger. Uh, unionist versus Republican uh, d- uh, co- uh, conflict over what the political future of Northern Ireland should be. It's interesting. Brexit passed fifty-two forty-eight throughout the United throughout the United Kingdom, but in Northern Ireland, as you mentioned, Claudia, it, there was support to remain in in the fifty-six percent. Yeah, yeah, which means against Brexit. And the reason why that was was Northern Ireland has been the beneficiary of about 10 billion pounds per year of, they call it subventions, we would call it subsidies, from the United Kingdom, I'm, I'm sorry, from Britain, from England, into Northern Ireland to stabilize that place. So Northern Ireland has kind of lived off these subsidies for decades, and that's why you saw the majority in Northern Ireland vote actually against Brexit and to remain in uh, the European Union. Because I thought the subventions were going to be undermined by the uh, an economic decline yeah. from withdrawal from the uh, yeah. EU. Yep. Well, the Democratic Unionist Party is the only reason Theresa May is in power now. So the ironies sort of stack up, don't they? Because the DUP is expressly housed uh, their their home, their base is in they are a part of northern ireland mm-hmm. so that kind of tension must you've been there a couple of times since brexit so is that irony sort of a, a hard one for people to swallow here's where things get incredibly fascinating and and close to unbelievable the dup is the democratic unionist party on both sides, Unionist and Republican, there there are two parties on each side. One is a more moderate, and the other one is extreme. On the uh, Republic Catholic Republican side, that uh, more extreme party is Sinn Fein, which was uh, aligned for years with the Irish Republican Army, the IRA paramilitary. On the Unionist side is the Democratic Unionist Party, which was closely linked with several different Unionist paramilitaries, militias during the Troubles. DUP was the home of Ian Paisley. And Ian Paisley Jr. now carrying on. They've carried this torch for two-plus generations. And Ian Paisley was this hardcore guy. used to call Catholics Catholics to make it sound like they're alcoholics. And just this awful guy. Uh, The DUP... um, and there's a story within Northern Ireland, but I'll focus on uh, Theresa May. The DUP 
is actually the only reason why the uh, conservative party is still in power. It's a, the DUP in Northern Ireland uh, is a Northern Ireland party, but it also sends representatives to Westminster to the to the British par- Parliament. They have ten members there, very small, very very small, but they hold a balance of power. They joined with the Theresa May Conservative administration to uh, sustain them, to, to keep them in power. Without the DUP, uh, Theresa, the Conservative Party would, be in, would not be, likely not be in control, and Labor would have a good chance of taking over. So what does that mean? The DUP is lodged within British politics. The DUP, extreme unionist view, they support a hard border, they want the UK to, to leave entirely uh, from the European Union, no continuing relationship with the European Union. They're very hardcore Brexiteers. So that's lodged right within the May uh, government. Uh, the May government tried to finesse things with what's called a backstop. And they said, okay, we don't want a hard border in Northern Ireland and Ireland because of the the memories of the past. Let's create, let's let's maintain a customs union between the UK and Ireland, Um, you know, guarantee free flow of goods and an implied mobility of people, maybe keep things the way they are. Let's have that customs union in place until we figure out what to do with the border. Now, that backstop was voted on by the British Parliament and fell terribly, and May was quite embarrassed by that. Uh, it was a compromise proposition by her, and the DUP, there's the DUP going, we don't want any continued customs union with uh, Ireland. We, Brexit said a complete exit. We want complete removal from the UK, from, uh, United, uh, from uh, European Union. So there was the DUP lodged right right within British politics, creating a tremendous amount of power, much greater than their their constitu their size of ten members, because they play that they're they're the one. If they remove themselves, then the Conservative Party may not be able to hold on to to power in uh, Britain. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Scott Bolins, Professor Endowed Chair in Peace and International Cooperation at UCI's School of Social Ecology, talking today about the fraught dynamics along the Northern Ireland Ireland border amidst the Brexit process, which would make Northern Ireland, Ireland uh, a hard, uh, uh, the hard one. So we're, I know there's a lot of one we're going to have time to talk about, but I, I guess along with the tensions that are ramping up, and I'm, I mean, I'm seeing ironies sort of packaged within ironies and all that, but there's so many opportunity costs. We're talking, I, I'm wanting to bring it down to like the local level because it's not getting a much attention for my taste for people to appreciate just how closely those uh, communities have interacted over that border immediate to there. But so like, you could drop off your kiddos on the other side of the border and then come back and go to work. But if you've got a, a border crossing that's going to check your paperwork and all that, though all those connections end. So, but there's there's the very social opportunity cost. There's there's an opportunity cost of the uh, added security of and then trade. There, the the flow of goods, whether it's a it's a truck, it's a um, it's merchandising. I mean, what opportunity costs leap up to you as the most severe? 
It's the mobility uh, issue with a hard border. First of all, what would be a hard border? Um, actually, one. Would look like Tijuana. Take take one step back. Uh, we have to mention that Brexit is supposed to take place on March 29th, yep. which is six weeks from now. And right now, we're facing what's called the No Deal, which means which means hard border. Which means de facto something has to be done with that border. Uh, a hard border, what does it mean? It would mean border posts. It would mean physical checks. It would mean long lines. It would be checking ID. Infrastructure, I mean, barriers, actual physical barriers. Yeah, that's That would be the full implication of a hard border. Now, right now, you know, there's these 270 roads. We're talking about every month, here's the estimates, about 180,000 trucks pass through that border, uh, over 200,000 vans. And about 2 million cars cross over that border monthly every, every month. Daily, about 30,000 people cross that border to travel to work, uh, to go get goods and so forth. Can I, I just want to break down. You were talking about how many roads. You said 270. I'm, I just found, I'm looking at up to 20, 275 crossing points. So I'm, I'm, it intimates to me there could be just a matter of taking a, a footpath over there and to also sort of frame the the intimacy of the the cross-border interactions yeah there's there's major there's major roads there's some major roads that cross the border and those are the ones that during the troubles the british army was was all over those places those are the main points of mobility but then there's all sorts of i would call them smaller roads um you could have a car on them smaller roads but very small irish roads and kind of the, the strong majority of, of these passageways are probably these smaller roads, which are very, very difficult to uh, check uh, mobility on those. Uh, the British Army had a hard time during the Troubles. They barricaded these roads because they couldn't, uh, they couldn't have checkpoints there. But to think of a hard border and you have checkpoints and... Um, you know, you have checkpoints maybe on the large roads, but all these smaller roads people are going to use to get in and around the, the barricades and the walls uh, in a Brexit hard border. So the, it, it doesn't seem feasible uh, when people mention the hard border between uh, the two places. It doesn't, seem f- it doesn't seem that it would be effective in, in, in stopping the flow. And, you know, this is the same discussion we have uh, today with the Trump wall uh, in America and Mexico. How, how effective, beyond the politics, how effective would it actually be in stopping migration flows and so forth? There's a, different, there's a division of uh, opinion on that. Um, so it's the, it's the mobility. Um, you know, 30,000 people per day crossing that border. That's a lot of people. And all those uh, uh, trucks and vans and cars I mentioned, that is a, that is a huge amount of, uh, right now, uh, fluidity in that border. And that fluidity would be uh, curtailed one way or the other, either in a very hard, rigid fashion with a hard border or with a soft border. What's a soft border, by the way? You know, people are just kind of figuring all this out. The soft border where that would allow more bo- mobility, people always talk about electronic checks. So much as like we use a toll road here and our car is checked Transponder, yeah. and, and registered, it would be that sort of thing. So mobility would be not curtailed, but it, there would be, it would be monitored in a way. Cameras, electronic monitoring, that would be the, the soft border version. So 
these this hardening of a border is expensive and if you've got you're talking about those subventions are going to be starting to decline but you've got now new expenses what's the discussion where what pot of money is the hardening on the border going to come out of that's a great question i don't i don't even think politicians are there yet they're trying to figure out the you know the the hard brexit people are are just trying to figure out how they're going to do it. Does DUP talk about how they're going to fund it, or they just they, keep the eye over they here? They don't. They don't. The rabbit out of the hat. I mean, it would be the obligation of the United Kingdom, of the UK, to build this hard border and all these all these things, because the Republic of Ireland doesn't want it. So it would be it would be it would be Britain and the UK uh, putting all that money into it. Uh, you know, you you could take the ten billion dollars in subventions that they currently plow in the Northern Ireland, and take some of that. But, but it's not been it's not been I, considered. I don't know. You you would be diverting money that's really used for social infrastructure and social services, holding together that society, and divert it into physical infrastructure, which is not that much of a productive uh, expense by by Britain. And that I'm imagining the the in Northern Ireland. I well, actually, I, I've heard on public radio Northern Ireland is is promoting their economic development. So I don't know if that's a, an indicator they're prospering or if there's a decline factor. And that that also is a a, a dynamic afoot here in trying to be solvent in mm -hmm. making these different these transitions with Brexit. Northern Ireland is doing better than it used to, uh, but you have to remember they had three decades of civil war in Northern Ireland, so it was a pretty beat-up place. Um, I spent a lot of time in Belfast, the major city and capital city, and it, its downtown is doing much better. It's actually attracting tourists now. Tourists uh, like, it's called conflict or dark tourism. People like going to places that have been inflicted with conflict. That's uh, kind of a maybe a indicator of where the human soul is these days. <laughs> they need that contact. Um, so it is doing better, um, but the, the main challenge in Northern Ireland and in Belfast particularly is those two sides. In Belfast, for instance, the working classes still are very segregated. There are Republican neighborhoods, there are unionist neighborhoods, and there are they are separated by walls. Anywhere between 30 and 50 different walls separate uh, neighborhoods that were at war with each other during the Troubles, uh, so-called peace walls. So you have the Good Friday Agreement was the peace agreement that's, that addressed the political issue, uh, political power sharing, in 1998. But you still, on the ground, you have this legacy of warfare and the and there's not mixing of people uh, among the working classes and there's there's still remaining hard feelings even 20 years post peace agreement well this begs the question scott whether those urban physical barriers are an uh, let's call it an infrastructure idiom that that gives the protestants i'm not sure about the the catholics but the protestants are that that idiom is something they've lived with, and they're more casual about what that means to erect a fortification along the Northern Ireland yeah. Ireland border. Yeah, Protestants um, are under threat demographically. Northern Ireland used to be a strong Protestant uh, area, Northern Ireland, and so did Belfast. And the Protestants were always in political control. Well, lo and behold, now Northern Ireland, due to demographic shifts, it's both Protestant outmigration and, and a higher uh, natural rate of birth by Catholics, 
Um, it's gradually now become, in Northern Ireland, we're about at parity. We, we are about even between Catholics and Protestants, which is the first time Northern Ireland has been that way uh, for centuries. In Belfast, Catholics are now in the demographic majority. To what extent? Uh, significantly. Okay. So much so that they control the city council. We have, a Sinn, we had, we have Sinn Féin in power in the city council. We have Sinn Féin um, almost close to being the leading vote getter in the Northern Ireland Assembly um, election that last uh, took place a few years back. So the Protestant Unionists feel under threat, so those walls in Belfast give them security, and it protects what they view as their neighborhoods. That Catholic birth rate is higher, so in a normal city, you would have more and more housing for Catholics being put into what were considered Protestant neighborhoods. Those walls stop that process, and the Protestants can argue that this is their territory, this is their neighborhood, and we want to re-energize Protestant neighborhood. We don't want Catholic housing here. So those walls give protection. And going back to the Northern Ireland-Ireland uh, uh, border, I think that, wall, that hard border, if it was to come, is viewed by Protestant Unionists as protection uh, against a, a Catholic tide, a demographic tide that's going to change things. And I, I'd like to recommend listeners get a good look at the Northern Ireland breakdown of the the Brexit vote in June of 2016. And you can see in Belfast itself, you could practically probably imagine where those walls are because there's very bright blue uh, out, outcomes and very pink. Blue is for Remain and, and the mm. pink is for for Brexit. And you, mm. it's it's nowhere near like that in the rest of it. There's much larger sort of regional uh, homogeneity of voting outcomes. But mm. in Belfast, it's very strong. Mm very striking in there. Yeah. Well, I guess there there are a lot of parallels I can see and uh like a little lightning round here make it our the the last question here is the parallels with the Democratic Unionist Party. I I want to put Ulster when I see you mm-hmm. in there. That the, the, them with the the Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party having an outsized kind of influence on policy or the the whole red meat, the tribal aspect of hardening the borders, the aspect of flow over the borders. We have so much to sort of relate in in both of these incidences. I don't know if what ones of those are the most striking to you as we conclude the interview? Well, the Democratic Unionist Party power you can see because it's structurally set up, set that up through the parliamentary system. It, it, it needs coalitions. This is something we don't have, coalitions between parties. We have caucuses, but not coalitions. Yeah, we have caucuses yeah. and not, and not uh, parties. So the fragility of the conservative party, you can see that because of that need for that coalition. In the United States, the, the overpower of the Freedom Caucus that's just one caucus within a much larger political party. And there's arguments that, that political party, you know, if they wanted to do something else that's not in line with the freedom, the, the rigid policies of the Freedom Caucus, they would just go ahead and do it. And the Freedom Caucus would have no recourse. Re- they couldn't say, well, we're going to remove ourselves from, from, uh, from government. Uh, it just doesn't happen in, in the United States. They just lose power, basically, uh, the Freedom Caucus. So uh, I would hold the Republican Party in the United States up to a much more, um, much more criticism here because they could take hold of their party much more than they are 
to a more uh, agreeable path and not beholden to the more rigid Freedom Caucus. In, in the Theresa May case in Britain, you can see how tedious her uh, power hold is. And you can, uh, you, you, even if you don't agree with it, you can see why that those politics are playing out as they are. It's kind of like a pickle. I didn't know I was going to bring up a, a baseball metaphor. But the, the more she advances between first and second base that just gets tighter and tighter and tighter, she's going to be out. And so what, what, where is Britain going to be? She is so. in, she is in, a, in uh, not an enviable place at all. She is totally, totally stuck. Um, and I have one other thing I wanted to yes. mention. Uh, Can I do it? Yes, yes. For the listeners out there, you're probably wondering what's going to happen in Northern Ireland and Ireland in the future. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement said when Northern Ireland is ready, they can vote on a so-called border poll, whether they want to to uh, unite with Ireland or whether they want to remain in the United Kingdom. That is going to happen in the foreseeable future. W- what does that mean? Probably in the next 10, 15 years. And you might think, after what I said about the Catholic uh, majority uh, emerging in Northern Ireland, that it would be a done deal. It might be United Ireland after all, but it is not clear. Um, wow. It is not clear. Uh, there are Catholics, some Catholics that are not that supportive of uniting with Ireland, and also the Republic of Ireland has to vote on this, and they are very ambivalent about taking on this troubled child up in the northern part of the island. So pay attention in the next 10, 15 years to a so-called border poll, whether to unite with Ireland, and that's going to be also full of fascinating political dynamics. We have to pick that up when, as after the the Brexit sort of deadline is is passed. With I, lots of, lots of unanswered additional questions to talk about because I we didn't even get anything sort of prescriptive because maybe there isn't any prescriptive. Don't put a plebiscite up if you don't have plans B, C, and D ready to go. Exactly. Well, and, and listeners, pay attention on March 29th to see what happens. See, pay close attention. Well, Scott Bowens, professor and Dow chair in peace and international operation planning at UCI Social Ecology, talking about Brexit along the Northern Ireland, Ireland border. Thank you so much for being on today's show. You're very welcome, Claudia. We'll be right back with Don Wagner, and he's going to talk about running for the third district that's now open on the County Board of Supervisors. Thanks for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Returning to Ask a Leader is my next guest, Irvine Mayor and local attorney Don Wagner, one of seven candidates running in the March 12 special election for the open seat in the Orange County Board of Supervisors District. It's a nonpartisan race, but all the guns are watching this very closely, all the way up from here, all the way up to Sacramento, I must say. He's previously served as Assemblyman representing the 68th District, where he served on aging and long-term care, appropriations, budget, education committee, and judiciary committees. Previously, he was elected to three terms as a member of the Orange County Community College District Board of Trustees. He practiced law at Kendall and Anderson and later with Wagner and Associates. He's founder and president of the Orange County chapter of the Federal Society. Don Wagner earned his bachelor's degree in English from the University of California, uh, LA, and a law degree at University of Hastings College of Law. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Don Pleasure, Pleasure's mine. Glad to be back with okay. you, Claudia. Okay. Well, so I'm going to I'm I'm going to have to trim a few things. Um 
Irvine's dominated the third district concerns. You're the mayor of Irvine now in your serving in your second term. So what are you going to do to represent the interests of Villa Park, your Belinda Tustin, North Tustin <laughs> Canyon, the Canyons, Anaheim, Orange Park acres? Great question. The city of Irvine has uh, just geographically dominated not just central Orange County in the 3rd District, but all of Orange County. Uh, we're vibrant. We're a growing city, and it's been a real joy to be the mayor. But the truth of the matter is those surrounding cities, um, other than your Belinda, I've had the very uh, distinct privilege and pleasure of representing them before. I represented all of those other cities, including Irvine, in the 3rd Supervisorial District in Sacramento for six years. And so I have been closely tied to those communities. I have overwhelming support. The mayors of every one of those cities is supporting me. I know those local issues. I've served them before, and I'm looking forward to an opportunity to serve them again. So the matter of efficiencies, I'm really going to have to race through some of these things here. There's efficiencies in distribution of government services. We've got some sort of unincorporated landlocked kind of areas uh, in, within incorporated areas where the local agency formation commission, also known as LAFCO, uh, that you're, you've got an efficiency issue to deal with in carrying all this, uh, like the, the safety, public safety services and other sorts of things. How are you going to make decisions for, with respect to the, those kinds of efficiencies, as well as uh, dealing with efficiencies of proper land uses along uh, the, the transit corridors? Well, good question again, and, uh, because clearly you're getting how the county and the districts end up operating. There are a lot of individual cities in the district, but also some unincorporated areas. My sense is that the government governs best is the one that governs the least and governs the closest to the people. And with respect to the cities, that's the city councils and the mayors. Um, the county is there as sort of a backstop. The county is there to do things on a regional basis that any one individual city can't particularly do. But at the end of the day, um, I like to give as much autonomy as possible to the mayors and to the city councils because as a mayor, that's what I uh, particularly enjoy is the opportunity to do for my community what my constituents think need to be done. And I will empower the other mayors and city councils members. There is, however, a fair amount of land that is unincorporated. Right. And in those circumstances, uh, there are two things to know. One is that it's it's perhaps a bit of an oversimplification to say that the, su the county supervisor has the role almost as mayor of those areas. But but that's kind of how I look at it, and that's kind of the experience as a mayor in the city of Irvine that I would bring to making decisions, gathering input from the community organizations, and doing what those unincorporated areas need. The other point to make with respect to the unincorporated areas is that there are areas such as that spread throughout the county, and each supervisor has some of them in his or her district. There is, at the board to supervisors, or there should be a district, what's called the district prerogative. As the supervisor for the unincorporated area in the third, I would expect my colleagues to defer to me as the essentially mayor on most 
local control issues for those districts, while I would give them the same respect because they would know in their own districts their particular issues and have done the work that needed to be done as sort of the mayors of those other unincorporated areas. So that's kind of sort of holistically how I'd approach it. Okay, putting holistic and constituent-driven concerns. Let's go into the, the, in the absence of leadership on the national level, it's all changing a little bit. Uh, what, What is the local government's role in mitigating against climate change or climate damage, as some are saying, that there, you've got the climate action campaign going on, the community choice energy. What would be your role on the County Board of Supervisors advancing that kind of leadership on the local level? Um, you touch on so many things there. Let me give you one uh, a quick answer because because it's going to be different in a couple of different areas. For example, community choice. Um, I am a big fan of community choice aggregation. I think it is an issue that needs to be um, um, explored and embraced by by communities throughout Southern well throughout all of California, not just Southern California. Um, in fact, in my law practice, one of the biggest uh, practice areas that the firm was developing, and I've left that firm now. I'm, I'm doing this full-time. Uh, so I'm not pumping them, but, but that was an area of, of uh, intense work and I think very good work. This gives opportunities for consumers, it gives opportunities to control prices, and does have some substantial environmental benefits. Um, one of the things on the environment that we did in Irvine is go pesticide-free in our parks. And I think that is not just the wave of the future, but is good environmental stewardship. But you have to overlay that with a concern that I have that a little city, like any one of the particular cities in Orange County that is such a small part of California, the county in general is a relatively small part of California, and I would not want us to be um, uh, crippling our economy to make somewhat our marginal changes in um, um, the way we do business to respond to changes in the global environment. What we do in Irvine or what we do in Orange County needs to be balanced because it is swamped by what's being done in China and done in other parts of the world. And so let's make sure we approach in Orange County from a reasonable basis the changes that are coming and the government response to them. Because at the end of the day, uh, it is a matter of global and certainly of national concern. It isn't something, try as we might, that we can single-handedly fix here in, in Orange County. Well, with due respect, there have been repeated forums in mm-hmm. your district, in your municipality, that are there. Those people are staggering from paying close attention to all the trends underway, climate speaking, and that the only way they can probably get their rest, they would say, is that if everything was happening pronto, that there is a a municipal level, a regional, a state, national, international level necessity of activation. So I wanted to know if that urgency was something you're internalizing as well as the ones who've been watching this for the last 30 to 50 years. 
Well, I'll tell you, I have attended some of those. Indeed, there was one at UCI not too terribly long ago that I ended up attending. And the answer is yes, there is an urgency to to the issue, but the urgency is, I mean, look, I have to legislate as, as somebody responsible for passing ordinances or laws or whatever in the real world. I'll give you a quick example, Claudia. The greatest thing, and there wasn't much that was great, but the greatest thing about the drought, I was serving in Sacramento during the drought, and everybody was complaining about it, but you can't pass a law that makes it rain. And what that ended up showing to my colleagues on the other side of the aisle in Sacramento was the limit of government uh, uh, action. You can't similarly pass a law that makes the wind blow or makes the sun shine. And so we have to legislate our solutions to global warming in the real world, where the real world is that there are other jurisdictions L.A. right up the street from us, essentially, and certainly when you're talking about global climate, our nearest neighbor, who also needs to come to grips with, with the problems. And I don't think that us trying something that may not work or that may clean percent of the atmosphere until the wind shifts and we get blown in from L.A. County, I don't think that's worth billions of dollars of, of taxpayer cost out of our pocket interfering with our growth. You know, what you see beyond any doubt around the globe is that the countries that are the cleanest, that have the cleanest air and the cleanest water collectively are the ones that are the most uh, developed and have the resources to to, to, to spend on fixing fixing the climate. And I don't want to jeopardize those resources if we are, in fact, not actually able to make uh, uh, progress. And the drought and legislating in the real world is one particular example well, of Well, if we had time, I could talk about, bring up uh, where incentives <clears throat> have created adoption of various technologies that are shrinking the carbon footprint, but we don't have time for that. Okay. My guest uh, here uh, on, uh, my, if you've just joined us, my guest is Mayor Don Wagner, now a candidate in the March 12 special election for the open seat in Orange County Board of Supervisors. Early voting is going to be here at the, at Irvine's City Hall, March 11th from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., as well as there are other early voting places, March 8, 9, and 10, uh, and you can find out all those details at ocvote.com. So back to my lightning round. What is going to be your role in addressing all of the counties? share in affordable and, and well let's go start with the emergency housing to help with the homeless demographic that is increasing only it's only going in one direction what is your going to be your agenda there well, my agenda there is to continue not just the dialogue that's been going on, but the very productive work that's been going on at the county level and amongst the cities. I've taken a lead here in South County in trying to get us to all of South County to get a handle on the homeless problem. Um, there are new shelters that are going in that are real close to Irvine. Um, we've got a couple of police officers that are mental health professionals themselves with master's degrees that are, are addressing the homeless 
case that we're seeing in Irvine, that's a model that needs to be taken to the county level. And the county has been, M- MIAs may be a bit of an overstatement, but not much of one. The county's been somewhat missing in this debate until fairly recently when the federal judge got involved. And I've been in his courtroom and in his chambers and in settlement discussions uh, with, with all of the different players for quite some time now, and we're seeing productive uh, efforts finally. Judge Carter has gotten everybody in the county not just talking about, but working towards solutions to the homeless issue. And I am would relish an opportunity to join that discussion at the supervisor level, because that's where the real decisions need to be made, and that's where the most impact can be had rather than individually in the city levels. More about that, but unfortunately we can't do anything. So with Prop 47 that there was on the city Mm -hmm. council agenda last Tuesday, Mm -hmm. the Keeping California Safe Act of 2020, is you were advancing uh, portions of a proposition that's going to qualify on the, the 2020. I'd like for you to address the kind of, there's fiscal impacts of incarcerating more people. There's social impacts of people being incarcerated, uh, the recidivism, it increases. The each year you add to incarceration, uh, that's and the National Academies of Sciences talk about the lengthy prison sentences are not effective in in crime control. So what? How do you reconcile what you were advancing last week at the city hall with your fiscal conservatism and a good Samaritan in trying to help people be live in stable communities and help them? to not to uh, become uh, re-offenders, but to actually mend. Well, you're absolutely right that there are fiscal costs to uh, increasing a prison population. There are social costs to increasing a prison population. I would say that's half of the equation. The other half of the equation is there are fiscal costs to allowing predators out amongst us, and there are social costs to allowing predators out amongst us. What needs to happen is there needs to be a balance. I was in Sacramento serving in the legislature and opposed uh, Governor Brown's AB 109, which was called prison realignment. It essentially took some of the worst offenders amongst uh, the state prison population, moved them down to the counties, did not send funding down to the counties to help, and as a result, the counties were forced to release folks who should not have been released amongst us. And we've seen, even though Irvine remains the safest city of its size in the nation for violent crime, we've seen here and we've seen in all of Orange County increases in pop, uh, uh, um, uh, property crimes and increases in low-level offenses and drug offenses. So what we're talking about is no doubt a fiscal cost, but at the end of the day, one of the genuine true roles of government that any fiscal conservative, and I would hope any liberal uh, uh, elected official would say, is keeping the public safe. And what has happened, unfortunately, with the prison realignment and with the release of, of, uh, of felons into our local communities is, and the redefinition of some crimes, you're seeing things like the rape of an unconscious person is no longer considered a violent crime. Excuse me, that's absurd. Kidnapping of somebody for purposes of escape or to use as a human shield 
is no longer considered a violent crime. That's nonsense. And what the Safe Communities Act is trying to do is take a comprehensive look at what was done, unfortunately, and, and wrongly at the state level, and the pernicious effects it's had on the local level, and try to fix those. And, and that's what I'm supportive of. Does it have a cost? The answer is absolutely yes. But public safety is one of those costs that government should, in fact, bear. And, and we do have to worry about things like recidivism rates. We do have to worry about uh, the social costs to incarceration. But, Claudia, we've also got to worry about the costs of letting uh, people who should be in jail Well, it's helpful if, if some of those, uh, those that you're citing with the definitions and the rates, we, that we could nail down exactly the source of that. Because I think everybody could sort of pull out, cherry pick whatever kinds of of trends and all that that may or may not be uh, predictive and illustrative of what's actually going on. I'm going to have to just wind that all this whole interview down with, will you be posting your candidacy on Voters Edge with the League of Women Voters? The other candidates are already on. Are you yeah, getting on? I, I am. I... I got no good excuse that um, uh, your paper. I was talking with some of the folks from League of Women Voters the other day, and, and I'm going to do it. I just haven't done it yet because right. I've been very busy, but it, I will yeah, have it by the end of the week. It helps the voters like that basis of comparison yeah. with the financial backgrounds and, and that kind of thing. Other people can also sure. – it's also helpful, everybody, to take a look at websites for campaigns. You can see the alignment, uh, political alignment, and the endorsements uh, on all of them that they're posting. Well, that's all the time we have. I want to thank – Honorable Mayor Don Wagner, Mayor of Irvine, for joining us on Ask Lydia. He's running in the March 12 special election for the open seat of the Orange County Board Supervisor, 3rd District. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader. Take care. Thank you, Claudia. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I had lots of more questions, of course, and I, you know, I like to keep everybody honest. So Irvine residents can speak to Climate Action Plan that was mentioned in the the interview. It's going to be next Monday when the city updates its general plan and they're going to talk about whether the general plan should have one self-contained climate action element to it and not have it sort of plowed and put in different sections so we can all see where it's going. And so um, all the stakeholders are invited. So that's March 25th, 4.30 to 6 p.m. at Irvine City Hall. Details at the Climate Action Campaign uh, with Robin and all in charge. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, I'm going to have on two more candidates in this Orange County Board of Supervisors, 3rd District, former Villa Park Council member Deborah Polly and former Anaheim City Council member Chris Murray. OrangeCountyVote.com is your go-to for details. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk with you next week.